So we're going to study the Bible now, okay? Open up your Bibles. If you have a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We're studying the Gospel of Luke. We're calling this series through chapters 4 through 9, The First Followers of Jesus. We keep looking at the ways that Jesus has built this unstoppable movement. Two things that happen, we see him amaze his first followers, and then we see him call his first followers to actually follow him as disciples. And that's what we are engaging in as well. We come to worship Jesus. We're amazed at him. We have a sense of awe. And then we begin following him as students, as disciples. Next couple of weeks, we're going to finish up this section. Uh, It says chapter 4 through 9. We're going to sneak in a little bit of chapter 10 next week. And then we're going to transition to the next section, which focuses on the controversial sayings of Jesus. Uh, So it'll be about uh, 10 chapters towards the end of Luke before uh, the final stories of Jesus offering himself on the cross. And those will be the controversies of Jesus. But a couple more weeks here focusing in on Jesus calling us to follow him as disciples and as students. So this week, we're at the end of chapter 9. So it's chapter 9, verse 46 through 62. And you can find that on page 866 in the Black Bibles. If you want to grab one of those Black Bibles from under the chair, it's 866. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can keep that as well. We'd love for you to have your own Bible. Uh, But it's 866, uh, 866 on the Black Bibles. It's Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 62, and we're calling it Students of Jesus. Students of Jesus. And one of my primary theses here is that as a student, students of Jesus will be corrected by Jesus. So can you pop that up there on the screen? Students of Jesus, it's chapter 9, uh, verses 46 through 62. My big idea is that students of Jesus need to be corrected by Jesus. And my other secondary idea is that we don't really like being corrected. Am I right? Are y'all like me? You don't really like to be corrected, to be redirected, but that's part of what it means to be a student. Um, So I want to share a little story. My junior year in high school, I was taking pre-calculus. Yes, I'm sorry. I know that gave a lot of you a sick feeling in your stomach. I was taking pre-calculus my junior year in high school, and I just felt like I could never do anything right in that class. I just felt like I was always wrong. I was always being corrected. I was always being told I was doing the wrong thing. And to be fair, I wasn't the greatest student, okay? So it was actually just and right of that teacher to correct me again and again. But it just had worn me down. My precious little ego couldn't take it anymore. And by the end of my junior year, I was like, that's it. I'm done with math forever. I'm not going to take any, <laughs> I heard a cheer for that. I'm not going to take any more math classes. I'm done. I can't handle this constant correction, right? But here's the idea. If you're going to be a student, if you're going to learn something, you're going to have to be corrected. And that's what we're seeing in this text. We're going to see Jesus correct his students. And this is one of the sections we call the hard sayings of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus says hard things to us. Now, spoiler alert, it's worth it. Okay, it's worth it with Jesus. But let's look at what he has to say. It's in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 62. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. 
But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciple James, disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus is here correcting his current disciples and he's correcting new students, right? You're like, Jesus, be nicer. You could take on more students, right? That's what we want to say. But Jesus is hard and he's got these hard truths that he's directing them with. As I said, the, the spoiler alert is this entire book of Luke gives us the context of what Jesus is saying. And the entire book of Luke is now rushing. We see a transition here where he says it was time for him to be taken up, and so he set his face towards Jerusalem. The entire book is now rushing towards the sacrifice of Jesus in Jerusalem. That's where we're headed. And that's, what's, that's what empowers us to hear the hard sayings of Jesus knowing the sacrifice that he made for us, knowing the grace that God shows us, allows us the freedom to listen to him. He's not just a hard teacher that says hard things and walks away, but he entered into our pain with us, took our death and sin upon himself, and has transformed us from the inside out. And so that's the hope, and that's where the whole book is going. We're going to pray right now that the Holy Spirit would help us to hear this, because these are hard sayings. We've got to hear the hard sayings. We've got to unpack the hard sayings. So we're going to need grace and supernatural help to, to even listen. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that your spirit would be with us to help us to hear you, to receive what you say to us, that we would be corrected. Lord, you know our, our egos are sensitive. Uh, we don't want to be corrected. We want to see ourselves as king, as Lord, as God. But it's so much better with you as the God of this universe. And so we pray that your spirit would enter in and soften our hearts Help us to receive your word. Help us to trust you. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is that students of Jesus are not going to feel like geniuses or experts. They're going to be corrected. Students of Jesus are going to be corrected. We're going to be taken in a new direction, and that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's for Jesus to say, no, not there, come this way, right? That's what it means to follow Jesus, is to go the direction he is taking us, not the direction we were already going. He doesn't come to just bless what we're doing and say, oh, you're great, see you later. He comes and enters into the mess and pulls us in a new direction. So students of Jesus will be corrected by Jesus, and there are three key things that we're going to see in this text that are going to be corrected in our life. Students of Jesus will embrace weakness. Students of Jesus will embrace weakness. Number two, we'll see that students of Jesus make peace. Students of Jesus make peace. 
And then finally, students of Jesus commit absolutely. Students of Jesus commit absolutely. None of these things are things that we necessarily like, but by his Holy Spirit, Jesus will empower and help us to do this. A couple of parallel passages as you're kind of going back over it this week to think about, and I'll bring these up later, are Philippians chapter 2, where we're told to have the same mindset as Jesus because he sacrificed for us so we can trust him and follow him and sacrifice for others. Philippians 2 is a really key passage. And then John chapter 13. He gives us this example of suffering and serving, and he says, go do likewise. You see the example I've given you? Do the same thing. Be my teacher. None of us are above our teacher. Um, So number one, we're going to see in verses 46 to 48 that we are called on to embrace weakness. Students of Jesus embrace weakness. So I'm going to read that little section again, starting in verse 46. It says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, let me pause for there and say, an argument just arose, right? But where are we in context? Anybody remember what happened last week? They saw the transfiguration. They saw the revealed glory of Jesus. They saw him casting out demons that nobody else could cast out. They are becoming more and more convinced of his lordship, of his power, of his centrality, of their need for him, his incredible might and power. And in that context of seeing the greatness of Jesus again and again and again, what are they talking about? Their own greatness. They're saying, which which one of us is the greatest? An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So how do we become great? By becoming the least, by honoring the least, by embracing weakness. Students of Jesus embrace weakness. Again, Philippians 2, we're told explicitly to follow his footsteps. John 13, we see it lived out as a model. This same little story is told also in Matthew 18. Let me read the Matthew 18 version for you. Uh, It gives a little more detail says in Matthew 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So there are multiple stories like this. Uh, We think there are multiple retellings of the same story, but there are also other instances where Jesus says things like this as well. So we've just got a a whole pile of these kinds of things that Jesus said. And I want to point out two parts of it, right? There's an embracing of weakness spiritually before Jesus. So he says, you got to humble yourself like a little child, right? A little child is just like, I don't know, but the grown-up told me to do it, right? Like, I trust them when they're being obedient. But I guess sometimes the child's like, I don't know. I just know I'm in charge and I'm not going to do what they say. But he's not talking about that illustration, right? Middle Eastern culture, first century. The, the child trusts the adult. I'll just, I'll just do what the adult says, right? They're the one in charge. Jesus says that even if you're strong, if you're smart, if you're gifted, if you're skilled, you come up to Jesus and you don't put your gifts on the table 
and say, Jesus, you owe me some salvation here because I'm so gifted, right? Or you're giving. We talked about financial giving. We don't, we don't put our finances on the table. Hey, Jesus, I've got some money. You probably want me to be a disciple, right? You don't put your intelligence on the table. Jesus, I'm, I'm really smart. I think you need me on your team. No, you just you relinquish all that. And you embrace your weakness spiritually before God. Before a holy God, we are all undone. Say, woe is me. I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I don't have the power to save myself. So, so that's the first embracing of weakness. Then, then it becomes a lifestyle where we can actually serve others. We don't have to push others out of the way in order to justify ourselves, in order to build an identity based on our own power. We can trust that the power of God is enough. So embracing weakness does not mean we glory in our weakness in the sense of like, it's great to be weak. I want to not develop myself. I want to be as stupid as possible and as weak as possible physically, right? Like that's not the goal. That's not what he's saying. He's saying before a holy God, that's who you are. (laughs) Before a holy God, you're nothing. Be able to admit that before him and trust that he's gracious and he'll save you and he'll lead you. I found a picture online of a family that had done family pictures in the mud. And I thought this was funny, right? Um, I don't know if you've done family pictures before where everything kind of goes wrong. You know, it's kind of a classic trope of having a family is we've got this great idea, you know, the great family vacation or the great family pictures and then everything falls apart, right? It just doesn't work out. I had this fantasy of how beautiful and gorgeous and amazing it would be and it just wasn't that, right? Got the one kid that'll never smile or they're turned the wrong way or, you know, whatever it is. I think one year we photoshopped in a kid's face on top because we just couldn't, you know, there wasn't one picture that had them all smiling. Um, And so I thought this was kind of funny. Now, I actually think this might be taking it too far, Okay. Right, like so. When he says embrace weakness, again, he's he's not saying like just glory and ugliness. And if you're strong, uh, just you know, stop lifting so you can be more weak. Or if you're smart, just go become as dumb as possible. He doesn't mean it in that sense. He means revoking that your identity would be in that, right? And not pushing others out of the way so that your strength can be on display. What does it mean to let others go first? Philippians 2 says, have the same mindset as Christ, who didn't consider his equality with God a thing to be held on to desperately, but he gave that up and he came down to earth. He left the perfection of heaven and entered into our nasty neighborhood here. We call this world. And he he bore our shame and he saved us. We're supposed to have that same attitude, giving up our rights giving up our glory so that we can serve others. Now, again, I think it's perfectly funny. If you want to take pictures in the mud, go for it, right? Like, I'm not saying this is a moral problem. I'm just saying sometimes we can take it too far and think, oh, the goal is for me to be symbolically weak, right? Or the goal is for me to actually not be able to do anything in life and just sit there. That's not what he's saying. He actually wants you to be great, right? He says, he who is least among you all is the one who is great, He's saying, he who puts others first, whose whole job is, is to stoop and serve and to lift up others, that's, that's true greatness. And so that's what he lives out in John chapter 13. And then that's what is described for us in Philippians chapter 2. Have the same mind as Jesus, who didn't desperately hold on to his perfection, let go of that power, and came and served us. We should be 
like Jesus. We should serve others. And so what allows us to do this? Well, the gospel, number one, having a changed mind. Romans 5, 6, and 5, 8 says it in different ways. Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So the gospel is not God waited for you to clean up or be strong enough or to be intelligent enough or be good looking enough and then he saved you. No, it was in your weakness, in your rebellion, in your sin, God came and saved us. He took the initiative. So we see that and we respond to it. We see the grace and the power of Jesus and that actually changes us. That makes us then want to respond. That makes us want to give ourselves to him in love because of who he is. 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul stitches this into his philosophy of ministry. So 2 Corinthians 12.9, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, in human weakness. Paul says, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So again, Paul's coming pretty close there to glorifying weakness, right? He's not glorifying sin, and when you study the Apostle Paul and read everything he says, he's not like in every other verse going, and I'm really stupid, and I'm really dumb, and I'm really weak. You know, like he's not glorifying it or boasting in his weakness in that sense. He's boasting in it in the sense of saying, my identity is not in my power. My identity is in Jesus. So when the, the Apostle Paul gives his resume, he says, man, I've done all these great things, but those are all loss compared to knowing Jesus. Jesus is my hope. He's the power of salvation. So we embrace weakness spiritually, and then that's what opens up the door for us to embrace weakness socially, for us to to honor people that maybe don't have any value to us. In the first century, children had no value. They were just seen as worthless. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to value them. Or sick people, they were unclean and disgusting and nobody wanted to be around them. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to heal them and love them. Or sinners that were outside of God's approval. Jesus said, no, I'm going to enter into all of us, our world, as sinners and take your sin upon myself. So we embrace weakness spiritually before God. We get a new identity. Jesus gave himself for me. He is the power of God for salvation. That enables us to then embrace weakness socially with other people, to serve others, to wash feet. One final thing about John 13, the example of Jesus washing our feet is beautiful because it says he knew who he was, he knew where he had come from, he knew where he was going, right? His identity in the Father was settled. That's when he picked up the towel and washed feet. If you're fighting and scrapping for an identity, you're going to spend your whole life pushing other people out of the way so you can take center stage. But if you're trusting that God has given you an identity then you can serve others. Then you can say, what's, what's best for you? What, what do you need? You can put others before yourselves. Again, as Jesus modeled in John 13, he said, go and do likewise. And as Paul explains about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, we have the same mind as Jesus who did this for us. Okay, second point. Students of Jesus make peace. Students of Jesus make peace. We see this in verses 49 through 55. It's really two really little stories clumped together here. Students of Jesus make peace. Opposite of that is not make war, right? 
uh, verse 49, John answered, seems like maybe he's convicted here about the, you know, be like a little child, be humble. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. It's like John, maybe the other disciples had taken their commission that Jesus had sent them out to heal, to cast out demons, to preach the word of God. And somehow in their mind that got twisted into your job is to go stop everybody else that's doing that. (laughs) Jesus is like, no, that's not your job to go stop other people that are helping and healing. Your job is to follow me, right? Make peace, not war. I'm not sending you out to call down lightning bolts and destroy everybody that you don't think qualifies, right? So that's one short little story. It's a little bit mysterious. We don't have a lot of detail here, but then now we have a second story also involving John, James and John, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, right? So now the whole direction of the rest of the book of Luke is is really going to start focusing on Jesus's movement spiritually towards Jerusalem. Geographically, there's still some kind of here, there, bouncing around. But kind of the theological theme of the rest of Luke is he's, he's going to perform this new exodus in Jerusalem. He's going to die and rise again in Jerusalem. That's, that's where everything is headed. So saying, the days drew near for him to be taken up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were these people that lived in this northern part of Israel. And they had history going way back to after the reign of Solomon. The kingdom got divided and they started setting up false worship. And so they were seen as as cultic people. But then after that... After all these years of of cultic practices of not really following all of God's requirements in the scriptures, then the Assyrian Empire came in and they intermingled racially with other people groups. So we have this thing happening where you've got racism and occultism mixed together. And so I just want to clarify that the Bible is clear that all races, all people are accepted by God if they trust him. The Old Testament clarifies that as well as the New Testament. But the Old Testament much more uses tribal language. They were a tribal people. And so often you'll have this language talked about those people over there worship this false god. And like, for the most part, that was true, right? God wasn't saying, I hate everybody with this color skin or that color skin. He was saying, those people don't trust me. They need to trust me, right? And so again and again, the people of God would confuse faith and race, But that was never what the Bible taught. And it's even more clear in the New Testament. And so in the times in history when the Old Testament people of God, the Jews, or the New Testament people of God, churches, have mixed racism in with our faith, that's always been wrong. That's never been biblical. But we just have to say, okay, some of that was happening here, right? There was hatred. There was years of of war and division, cultural, social, racial, um, and religious. And so that's the situation with Samaritans. They're seen as a different race, but they're also seen kind of like as cult members. But Jesus is reaching out to them, right? He's healed people among the Samaritans. He's made ventures already into Samaritan cities. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans were like, we don't want you because you're on the Jerusalem team and, and we're on the Samaritan team, you know, like, so there was this tribalism that was still taking place. So what's the proper response? Well, James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, they come up with an answer. Here it is, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
These guys are nicknamed the sons of thunder, right? That's literally what Jesus calls them. And I don't think it was a compliment necessarily. Do you want us to just bring down fire? Bring down lightning? Send a bolt? Zap them? Right? Now remember, just a few pages earlier, they had seen Jesus speaking with Elijah and Moses. Elijah is the great prophet of God who is known as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. He's also known for this special little trick where he would bring fire down from heaven, right? Now that happened in a lot of other places in the Old Testament as well, right? Like God would manifest his presence or his will or his judgment by sending fire from heaven. But it's really interesting in the Elijah stories because in the Elijah stories, Elijah was often um, contradicting the prophets of Baal. Do you know who Baal was? He was this Middle Eastern god of thunder and lightning and storms and fire from heaven. I grabbed a picture of him just so you could see. Ancient carving. It's kind of hard to see, but what you'll see is his, uh, seems like his right hand, one of his hands is up with like a staff or a hammer, and then the other hand is holding a lightning bolt. Y'all think of any gods like that? Hammer, lightning bolt. We have a really popular one in our world right now, Thor. But there's a lot of other ones, right? Hey, Dad, Tessup. These are some other Middle Eastern ones. There was also a, a famous one named Zeus. Anybody ever heard of Zeus, right? Who would throw lightning bolts down from heaven. So you've got all these false gods in the Middle Eastern milieu who would bring down fire from heaven, right? And so Elijah is pushing back against that. Elijah's name is God is Yahweh. There's only one true God. And Elijah mocked them, made fun of them. They couldn't bring down fire. And then God sends down fire to consume the sacrifice. Some great stories. And the guys are like, all right, Jesus, this is the time for us to start really pulling out the power. Jesus says, that's not, that's not how we're going to do this. We're going to make peace. What's really interesting, if you're into like literary echoes from Old Testament to New Testament, Elijah means God is Yahweh. His follower was Elisha. His name means God saves. Jesus' name, Yahshua, means Yahweh saves. It's almost like a mashup of both of those prophets' names. And what's interesting is we see this again and again in the New Testament, that John the Baptist was the one that prepared the way for Jesus, and John the Baptist came in the power of Elijah. So there's this implication that Jesus is going to be kind of like Elisha. When you compare their two ministries, there is a little death that Elisha brings here and there. But for the most part, Elisha feeds, saves, heals, feeds, saves, heals. Elijah was the impressive God with the fire, the impressive prophet with the fire. But Elisha actually performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. But they were all healing and saving. And Jesus is like, oh, it's, I'm going to do things more like Elisha, right? It's going to look more like, this is going to look more like healing. Now, this is explained in the New Testament very explicitly by one of Jesus' most violent followers, Peter. So, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's in all the Gospels. When they come for Jesus, which one is the disciple that whips out the sword, starts swinging? It's Peter, Right? And Jesus is like, that's not how we're going to do this. So finally, at the end of Peter's life, it's like he finally gets it. And in 2 Peter, he writes this. 2 
Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is Peter who had used a sword in the ministry of Jesus and been rebuked for it. Has finally come to a place where he's like, God, God is not slow. God is patient. He's giving all of us time to turn and to trust him. That's the age we live in. That's what Jesus is calling us to and his disciples to, to make peace. The New Testament talks again and again about swords in different categories, and there's really two basic categories. There's the sword of God's word, and then there's the actual sword of justice, right? Many of you as soldiers, some of you as police, wield the actual sword of justice. And Paul explained in the New Testament that's part of God's plan, right? It's right and good that governments would have police and soldiers that wield the sword of justice to uh, keep evil at bay, right? But that's not what the church does. Historically, has the church done that sometimes? Yeah. And the church was wrong to do that. I don't want any of you, if you become a Sunday school teacher, using a knife or a gun to convert any of our kids, okay? I know some of you are thinking about it, but I just want to be clear. We don't do that here, okay? You know I'm joking, right? It sounds ridiculous, but like throughout history, Christians have done that. They're like, ah, we know we could convert more people if we threaten them with death. No, that's not how Jesus wants you to do it. And that's hard for us, right? Because some of you are walking in both worlds. You have a foot in both worlds. You wield the sword of justice. But what I'm telling you, what Jesus is telling you, is don't forget to wield the sword of God's word. Ephesians 6 says that is our only offensive weapon that the church uses. We proclaim the truth. So we've said many times as a church, embrace peace, make peace. This is the main point here. We're, we're all about peace. And we've said many times as a church, our personality really leans towards the compassion and kindness side, right? Like if we're all supposed to be about love and justice, if we're all supposed to be about truth and grace, we lean hard into being compassionate and hospitable. But as we do that, as we lean into that, we have to make sure we don't like pull our punches and not speak the truth. We have to speak the truth. And so we want to make peace as much as possible. As Romans says, if, if possible, li- live at peace with all men, right? Like as much as you can, make peace. Don't go around stirring up trouble. Go, don't go around calling fire down from heaven. Don't go around picking fights. But speak the word of God. And that's going to feel like violence to some people. And we're in a day and age where it's been publicly said on multiple fronts by non-Christians that if you speak the truth, you're engaging in psychological warfare. You're causing psychological trauma. You hate people if you speak truth. And we have to be careful to not give in to that spirit of the age. Does that mean we're going to swing hard to the like yelling and screaming at people all the time? No, we're, we're still going to be as kind as possible. We're going to be compassionate, hospitable. We want to be a place where you can invite your skeptical friends. If you are a skeptic, if you're questioning the faith, we're glad you're here. We want to reason with you. But we got to not be afraid to speak the truth. And again and again, we're told that the truth is like another sword. So we're making peace. How do we do that? We make peace with Jesus because he offers terms of peace. And then because Jesus has offered those terms of peace with us, 
that enables us to be peaceful with other people, to be gracious, to be compassionate. But we've got to settle it between us and Jesus first. So later on in Luke 14, we'll come to this later. He says, this is what discipleship is like. It's kind of like one king going out to encounter another king in war, figuring out that king has 10 times as many troops and he's going to demolish you. So then what do you do? You negotiate terms of peace. Jesus says, this is the situation. The God of the universe can obliterate you, rightly and justly, but he comes with terms of peace. He's offered his son. Jesus says, that's what it means to follow me and enter into my kingdom, is to recognize, I've got to surrender. I can't win this fight. All of us as human beings are born into the fight. We're all born into rebellion. We all, we all fight him. We all want to be Lord. We all want to be king. But Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to be the king of the universe that also gives myself as a sacrifice for you. He brings these terms of peace. Are you willing to negotiate with Jesus on the terms of peace that he offers? His very life starts there. We make peace with God. And then if we've made peace with God, we have this new identity. We can begin to share that truth with others, begin making peace with others. The third point is that students of Jesus commit absolutely. Students of Jesus commit absolutely. No turning back. We're all in. You can't be a halfway disciple. Doesn't mean we're perfect, but we're all in. So verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus is clearing up. He's not about the prosperity gospel. He's not offering your best life now. The gospel is clearly your best life later. Jesus left the perfection, the home of heaven to come into our rough neighborhood to save us. And he says, if you follow me, we're going to do life in this rough neighborhood for a while because God is patiently, slowly offering grace to more and more people. And so yet, best life later, heaven, face to face with God, no more tears, no more pain, no more crying. But right now, there's, there's no place for you to lay your head. Jesus says, don't follow me because you think you're going to get a bunch of fancy stuff here and now. Now, we get a little mixed up with that, right? Because the health and wealth gospel is based on some true things the Bible says, right? Like generally, if you obey the law and brush your teeth and work hard, you're going to do well in life, right? Like that's generally true. But to follow Jesus is giving up all of our wealth and privilege to serve others. It's embracing weakness. It's making peace on his behalf. And it's committing absolutely to him first and health and wealth secondly. So it doesn't necessarily mean you lose everything every moment you follow him, but he's like, don't, don't follow me for the promise of a fancy home because I don't have a home. That's what Jesus is saying. He goes on and there's another phrase, verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is one of the hardest sayings of Jesus. Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar that's an expert in Luke, said it's kind of like he took the very best excuse a Jew could possibly have for delaying discipleship. Like, this is it. This is like the holiest, most honorable reason you could have to say, Jesus, I need to follow you later. And Jesus says, that's not even a good enough reason to not follow me. 
Now, Jesus is not building a new set of ethics. He's not saying, okay, I'm throwing out the Ten Commandments and you don't have to honor your father and mother anymore. We don't care about that, right? He's saying, commit to me, absolutely. He's speaking metaphorically. It's clear here that this is a rhetorical punch in the face, but he's not like building a new set of ethics where we throw out the Ten Commandments. He says, let the dead bury their dead. He's talking spiritually, right? Because physically dead people can't bury dead people. He's saying spiritually, decide which kingdom you want to be a part of. Don't use any excuse to delay trusting in Jesus. It's very clearly in other places in Mark, he convicted the Pharisees for not taking care of their elderly parents, right? So very clearly, there's this ethic of you, you care for those that are dying, you care for the dead, you care for the parents, right? So all of those things that this good Jew would have valued, Jesus would still value those things. He's trying to make it about your commitment. Are you committed absolutely to him? That's the question. When Jesus is tugging on your heart, are you going to say, but, 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 or are you going to say, whatever you say, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. No matter what you say, I'm yours. And again, you don't follow him so that you can win his love and prove how perfect and strong and superior you are as a disciple. You follow him in, in complete surrender. Just like, I have no other hope. You're, you're the only one. Commit absolutely to Jesus. And then he gives his final illustration here, final hard saying of discipleship. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this is really interesting because, again, if you go back and compare to the Elijah and Elisha stories, Elisha was a follower of Elijah. And when Elijah called him, he was plowing. And he was like, hey, can I say goodbye to my folks and take care of my oxen first? And what did Elijah say? He was like, yeah, that's cool. Go ahead. (laughs) He was like, that's okay. Yeah, go take care of your stuff. Jesus is basically raising the bar here. He's saying, yeah, in many ways, this looks like the Elijah and Elisha stories, but I'm taking this to a whole new level. Jesus wants you, wants them, wants us to know he's our only hope. It's that desperate. It's that important. Jesus makes himself the center of everything. Commit to him absolutely. We first commit to Jesus as Savior, and then we could commit to him as a teacher who we begin to obey. So this plowing thing is actually a really common uh, proverb. It was used all the time in in many different Middle Eastern and Greek cultures. I grabbed a picture here of someone plowing. Um, We're a post-agrarian society in many ways, so we don't understand plowing. Plowing is is this metal instrument that uh, would often be pulled by animals, and you're basically digging a furrow in the ground so you could plant seeds. And you would want that thing to be generally in uh, parallel rows as you're planting your crops, right? So you could take care of them and walk down rows that made sense, some semblance of order. And the idea is if you're going to go this direction, you need to go this direction, right? The proverb is if you're a kid learning to plow, if you're plowing and you keep looking back, right, and talking to your friends, then your furrow is just going to be all crazy and whopper jawed. Whopper jawed is a central Texas term, I think. Um, It's just going to go everywhere, right? Like it's going to be all out of whack, out of alignment. So it's just a really common proverb. It's like, either do this or do that. But don't waver back and forth. He's saying commit. Absolutely. 
do you believe Jesus is your only hope? Or do you really believe that your job is your only hope? And Jesus just makes you look good. Do you believe that Jesus is your only hope? Or do you have, believe having the perfect family is really your only hope? And Jesus might be a means to that end. The question is, what, what is your hope? Commit absolutely to Jesus. As we commit absolutely to Jesus as our only hope, that's what gives us the new identity and enables us then to begin to commit to Jesus as our Lord, as our teacher, as the one who tells us how to live, who corrects us. And we can receive that correction because we love him. There's this phrase uh, from John Calvin's teaching in the Reformation called the third use of the law. Um, And the third use of the law is like after these other uses where the law um, shows you that you need Jesus, right? Shows you they're sinner. There's this third use of the law that Calvin would point out. And that is the use of a son or a daughter of God receiving the law as good and sweet. The idea is this, that as you've received Jesus as your Savior, as you know he loves you and he gave himself for you, then you actually want to do what he says. So commit absolutely to Jesus as Savior, as your only hope, as the gracious one who loves you, who will give you life. And then you'll be able to start obeying him. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means his commands begin to look sweet to you. Like, oh, now I trust and know that what God tells me to do is good. Commit absolutely to him. And you'll begin to see more and more that he loves you. One of my favorite ways that this is illustrated is in a more recent book by John Lynch called The Cure. There's another version that came out years ago called True Faced. So some of you have probably read this, but... In the cure, he gives this kind of competing visions that we have of our relationship with Jesus. One is, I've got this pile of sin. I've just got this messy pile of sin. And my job is to to fight through that so that I can get to Jesus. I've got to make my life right. I've got to get religious enough to clean myself up and get to God. That's one view of religion. That's every other view of religion except for Christianity. Christianity says Jesus fought through that muck and mire to come to be with you. And now he's with you because he gave himself for you. He died for you. He loves you. He entered into our world. His arm is around you. And he's like, yeah, that is a lot of sin, but we'll work on this together. He's with you in it. He's not abandoned you. So is Jesus saying hard things to us? Is he calling us to hard things? Yes, but he's with us. He loves you. He proved that by dying for you, by giving his life for you. We'll wrap up here. Students of of Jesus will never feel feel like geniuses or experts, right? We're always going to be redirected towards him. But because of his, his grace, because of his kindness to us, we will actually start following him. He will change us. He'll he'll make us more like himself. He'll teach us to embrace weakness, to make peace and to commit absolutely. Um, that, that hard math teacher I had in my junior year, like I said, you know, I was kind of making fun of myself. I was a bad student. I had ego problems. You know, she, she hurt my precious ego pointing out what a bad student I was. And I was just done with math. But then right at the end of the year, when we were registering for the next year's classes, that senior calculus teacher saw that I had not registered for her class And she could have judged me as a bad student as well, because I was a bad student, justly, rightly. 
But instead, she entered into my life. She, she came after me. She was like, hey, you are a bad student, but I, I can help you. And she came alongside me, and she helped me. Now, I'm still not sure why I did calculus, because, you know, I don't work for NASA or anything. But, but she helped me to do what I thought was impossible. And so the much bigger lesson here is Jesus is calling us to hard and impossible things. And he says again and again, what's impossible with man is possible with God. He's the one that enables you to follow him. Come to him, trust him, follow him. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us, that you've called us to yourself. Again, we recognize that you so often call us to hard things and we flinch and we think that we've got to do it all on our own. But we recognize this morning that you are the one that empowers us by your Holy Spirit, by your work on the cross, through your resurrection. You are where the power comes from. So help us, like Paul, to learn to depend on your power in the midst of our weakness so that we could follow you, so that we could truly be your students. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.